It's May the 5th, 1961. 23 days earlier, Yuri Gagarin was the first human being launched into space. And now the Americans are uh, on the verge of their own attempt, and the first American who will be launched into orbit is a man named Alan Shepard. Alan Shepard is sitting in his capsule. Uh, he has been sitting there for the better part of four hours. They have delayed the launch over and over and over again. The technicians are worried about the weather. They're worried about the specifications of the rocket itself. They're worried about the boosters. They're worried about the weather. They're worried about the clouds. They're worried about the landing. They're worried about everything, months, years, thousands and thousands of workers over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of man hours have now culminated on the launch pad there in Florida, May the 5th, 1961. Alan Shepard locked into a seat for now hours, having endured repeatedly the testimony from the leadership at NASA that we, we have to wait just a few more minutes. We have to check. We have to fix the... Finally, snaps in frustration and says, fix your little thing and light this candle. It's a great moment in American history, and it's a great moment in aerospace innovation because essentially here for all of the things that could go wrong... Shepard says, I'm going to be the one who reaches out and mashes the giant green button that says, go. Let's light this candle. And taking his lead, the leadership there at NASA, well, they push the button. They light the candle. He launches into space. And he's the first American to do so. Everything that they had done so far, every engineer who had worked on the project, every mathematician, every politician, every weather person, all of the various professors and scientists and all of the leadership, all of the workers, everyone from the top to the bottom, all those who were involved in the project had to admit that until that moment that Shepard says, light this candle, the possibility that the Americans could put a man in space was still theoretical. It should work. All of the pages that we have spent writing out our calculations and our designs all of the miles of pieces of chalk that we have expended on blackboards across the nation tell us that it is theoretically possible. But it's not until somebody pushes the button that they light the candle that it becomes practically true. Now, a lot of us have a faith that is theoretically possible. It's theoretically able to endure in hard times. It's theologically possible to engage in the kinds of turmoil that the Bible promises in the lives of believers. It's theoretically and potentially capable of doing the kinds of things and fulfilling the kind of commission that we're called to as followers of Jesus Christ. It's theoretically, potentially, possibly true. But it's not until God in his providence, pushes the great green button that says go and launches the believer into the atmosphere of uncertainty. That is human certainty, certainly he knows. But launches us into the atmosphere of uncertainty, of frightful things, of unpredictable things, of things that will try us and test us, that we find out if our faith is practically true. Joseph is a man who is just now here 
in Genesis chapter 40, had his great green button pushed again. He's endured one tragedy after another. And after a somewhat rocky start in the early chapters of his story in Genesis, what we're finding is a dynamically changing Joseph, a man who was once young, entitled, bratty, is now proving himself faithful, obedient, and earnest to do all that God has called him to do. And now we come to the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 40. Now, you'll remember what happened last week as we talked about the first great trial that Joseph stands up in and acts like a godly man in the midst of. He's worked in the house of a high-ranking Egyptian official whose wife has come on to him, and resisting her advances, she then castigates him and accuses him of horrible, terrible things. And Potiphar, that Egyptian official, then has him cast into prison. Now, we've been able to see not only his trials over and over again, we've been able to see God's providential hand working in all of this, that the good of Joseph is being worked out, and the good of Israel through Joseph is being worked out, even in the midst of all of his trials, maybe especially in the midst of all of his trials. But starting in Genesis chapter 40, the first couple of verses, we find him again in the midst of another trial. His faith isn't theoretical, it's not possible, it's actual, it is practically being worked out. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and the pharaoh's baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. We're never told exactly what that is, but it's bad enough that verse 2, Pharaoh was so angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. How long, we don't exactly know. The situation is bleak. Joseph has done all the right things. He said all the right things. He has maintained faithfulness for the duration of his time in Egypt and has still gone down. But instead of relegating his attitude toward one of bitterness and incredulous disbelief, that God is not taking care of him, that God does not know what he's doing, that God does not have a providentially worked out plan for him. Instead, Joseph has been faithful, he's been patient, he's been consistent. And so he's in prison. And he's acted so admirably in prison that the head of the prison has put him in charge of all the other prisoners, to the point where when Pharaoh himself sends two of his highest and most personally trusted officials to this prison, the warden says, hey, Joseph, look after these two guys. I trust that you know what to do in order to take care of them. So the situation is bleak, but Joseph remains. And he's not alone. He's got two roomies. Verse 5. And here's where we find uh, the great substance here of the work of Joseph in prison. And one night they both dreamed. That's the chief baker and the chief cupbearer. These are the two guys who had a dream. Uh, the cupbearer, the baker of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each in his own dream, each dream with its own interpretation. Now, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. And so he asked Pharaoh's officers, verse 7, 
who are with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And just keep that image in your mind because the downcasting of the faces and the lifting up the faces is going to play here in the imagery that Moses uses in Genesis 40. Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, let's take a little aside here. I don't want to chase a rabbit hole for a very long time. This is a marginal note. I'll give this one to you for free. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, there are a number of times when people who are not followers of the one true God, the God of Israel, have a dream, and they are entirely dependent on an Israelite in order to provide an interpretation for that dream. If you study the entirety of the Old Testament, not once, not once, does an Israelite need someone to interpret a dream for them. But it is a repeated occurrence that God uses the Israelites as proof of his providence and sovereignty to interpret dreams for pagans in order to prove that he's the one who's calling all the shots, not just locally, but on a global scene. You see the exact same thing, and this is worth writing somewhere in a marginal note in your Bible, Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar has a series of dreams, and we need Daniel, the great prophet, the Israelite, the follower of the God of Israel, to come in and provide the interpretation for that dream. There are untold parallels between what's happening here in Genesis chapter 40 and what happens there in Daniel chapter 4. Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Dreams happened all the time in the Old Testament, both for pagans and for those who followed the God of Israel. In the Old Testament, Abraham is given a dream in Genesis chapter 15. Abimelech in Genesis 20, Jacob in 28, Joseph here in 37 and again in 40, Pharaoh in 41, we'll see that next week, Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, the Midianite and Amalekite armies in Judges chapter 7, and it's not just the Old Testament, it's the New Testament as well. Zacharias has a dream in Luke chapter 1, Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, Pilate's wife in Matthew chapter 27, Ananias in Acts chapter 9, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, Peter in Acts chapter 10, Paul in Acts 18, and in Acts 16, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and, well, you know, John has a dream that we call the book of Revelation. So there are an awful lot of dreams that we find throughout the Bible, and the way that an awful lot of believers have approached those dreams in the Bible is they've said this, aha! I understand. God speaks to his people through dreams. Well, that's possible. I don't want to say that God can't speak to his people through dreams. But that does not seem to be the normative practice of how God speaks to his people in the age in which we have the entire canon of Scripture. We want to be extraordinarily careful in the way that we think about dreams and in the way that we practically try to apply our dreams in the age in which we have Genesis to Revelation, the entirety of how God has revealed himself in his word. Because people can sometimes do extraordinarily asinine things. I had a dream. A water balloon fell from the sky and crashed on my head. And a clown was driving a unicycle by 
and then I ran into a camel, and the camel turned into a butterfly, and obviously this means that, you know, God wants me to do X, Y, or Z. And you think, what? What in the world are you talking about? You ate chili at 10 o'clock at night, and it didn't go down well, and now you had a dream, and for some reason you think that that means that God wants me to do something for you. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Take a Tums. It'll mean something different in the morning, right? Be careful. Kevin DeYoung, in his very helpful book, Just Do Something, Why We Don't Need Dreams or Visions or Liver Shivers or anything to interpret the will of God, says, with the completion of the Bible, God does not have to use dreams and visions as much as he did before. That is not to say that he cannot or does not God can communicate with us however he chooses, but when we have a decision to make, our first stop should always be the Bible, not a dream. If you happen to have some particularly lucid dream and you think that it means something, before you tell anybody, get out your Bible. Open it up. Does it say the same thing? Right? We're told in Joel chapter 2 that as we increasingly approach the day of the Lord that the, uh, I think it's the old men will have visions and the young men will dream dreams and there seems to be an increase in the way that God communicates to his people in that particular way and that special kind of revelation in proximity to his second coming. It is entirely possible that that will happen, right? Our, our young men, these three, we've got four guys over here. Maybe they're going to have some special dreams here in the second row. I don't know. But for right now, we're going to stick close to the word. We're going to say that God can do things but we're going to be really, really careful about the way that we say that God does do things and is working, right? Uh, we could spend more time there, but we won't. That's not the entire purpose of our gathering this morning. So they've had dreams. And Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God? Now, here's what's exciting about that is Joseph has a theological worldview. And this is worth just making a note here. It is not a random occurrence to Joseph. It's not something that's happening as the result of the Egyptian pantheon of gods. It's not something that's happening as a result of some bad Egyptian chili that has gone down. He understands that what's happening here is a God thing. It does not naturally happen to people that they construe a theologically cogent worldview. We train ourselves by worship and the word to view the world as the realm of God and God's work. I remember as a little kid, I saw a movie, and it was about a detective. And it was one of these great 40s-era detective, schlocky crime movies. And it's a dark, snowy night, and here's the detective, the private eye, whoever he was, and he's looking for a particular assailant, and he walks up to this apartment, and it's a gritty part of New York City, and he sees the person's car there on the street, and he runs over, and he puts his hand on the hood, and it's still warm. And he turns to the person who's with him, the young kid, and he goes, ah, it's still warm. He couldn't have been here very long. And he goes upstairs, and he kicks open the door, and the lights are on. And there are two glasses on the table, and one has lipstick on the rim. And he goes, ah, he's got a woman with him right there. And they haven't drank very much, so they must have. Maybe they went out on the fire escape, and the fire escape went. And he deduces all of these sorts of things in just the first few minutes because he has trained himself to think like a detective, to observe all that's happening around him from that particular perspective. 
Uh, one of my favorite shows the last 10 years is the Benedict Cumberbatch uh, version of Sherlock Holmes. And I love the scene when he first meets Dr. Watson. And he tells him like 30 things about who he is before they've ever said a word to each other. Because he's trained himself to observe and to see what's happening around him as clues to the evidence of the action of the people that he interacts with. And it's the same way with Joseph. Joseph sees what's going on here, and he says, immediately, I know this is a God thing. God is here. God is doing something. And he says here very lucidly, for all of us who are reading some thousands of years later, do not interpretations belong to God? Hey, guys, as it works out, I've got some experience in this whole dreams from God interpretation gig. Let me be helpful to you. And so he is, starting in verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, now, now in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine were three branches, and as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, well, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Now, you remember, he said, why is your face downcast? Here he goes, lifting up. He will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. And then he says, something interesting here happens in verses 14 and 15. So go ahead and make a little mark around 14 and 15. This is incidental to the interpretation, but here's Joseph summarizing where he's come from so far and making a plea to the uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer, okay? He says, only remember me when it's well with you, when you're back, when you're at the top. Remember me, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so to get me out of this house. Now, you remember, he's in the house because of the things that were said by Potiphar's wife, an extraordinarily powerful and influential person in the kingdom, in the empire of the Egyptians. There are very few people who could have overruled Potiphar's wife and Potiphar himself, but Pharaoh is obviously at the top. Pharaoh is the one person who has the influence and the authority to get Joseph out of where he is, at least from a human perspective. Just remember me. For verse 15, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. You see, he equates what his brothers have done to him with what Potiphar has done to him. They have thrown me into the pit. Now, verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. Hey, the cupbearer, he got a good reading. Let me go ahead and get one of those good readings too. And anyone who's uh, read ahead at all this morning uh, knows that this is maybe not the case. I also had a dream, and there were three cake baskets on my head. Whatever that means. <laughs> and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. Wah, wah, right? This is not the interpretation that we wanted. You told the 
The cupbearer, his head would be lifted up. Sure, Pharaoh himself would lift his chin and restore him to a position of honor and authority. Except this time, he's going to lift your head up right off your shoulders, sucker, and you're never going to get out of this day alive. This is what's going to happen with you. In three days, the Pharaoh will come, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. One extraordinarily positive interpretation followed by an extraordinarily negative interpretation. Now, on the third day, let's see if God knows what he's actually talking about here. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Do not interpretations belong to God? Providentially, God knew what was going to happen all along. Even though we don't know what it is that the cupbearer and the baker had done, God knew. Even though they didn't know who they would meet in prison, God knew. Even though he had given them dreams, they couldn't possibly understand what they were about, but God knew, and God sent Joseph to them. And Joseph, by the power of God, interprets those dreams correctly. And three days later, God and his sovereign providentiality allows those dreams to come to fruition proving that he is the one who in fact is in charge of everything that behind the scenes and above and around and beside them God is doing the work it's not Pharaoh it's not Ra it's not Potiphar or Potiphar's wife it's not Joseph's brothers it's not even Joseph who's in charge here it's Joseph's God who's in charge here and then here, crushingly, verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Uh, be careful. Don't read any malice into that necessarily. But here's a man who thought he had lost his life, spent however many weeks or months in prison. A miraculous thing's happened, and he's been brought back into the household of the Pharaoh himself. It's possible that he just forgot. It's possible maybe that he was being mean. But the point remains that Joseph is still imprisoned. Joseph has been forgotten. That's going to be extremely important because something in the next chapter is going to jog this person's memory. The cupbearer is going to remember Joseph in a timely moment that God is providentially going to arrange. But before we go there, and we'll do that next week, I want to make three observations about Joseph's faith. Three observations about Joseph's faith. And so if you have a pen or pencil, these may be worth putting down somewhere. Number one, Joseph's faith is alert. Joseph's faith is alert, right? Opportunity is only available to those who participate. This is from Alan Ross, the great Old Testament scholar. God tests his people's faith and the promises before he entrusts them to positions of greater responsibility. Those who are convinced that God desires to use them in greater capacities will demonstrate unwavering faith in the midst of discouraging situations. Joseph at no point deactivates his faith. He doesn't mothball his faith. He doesn't put it in the back of the closet. He doesn't wrap it up like Christmas ornaments and stick them in the attic until the day after Thanksgiving when all reasonable people put up their Christmas decorations, right? His faith is active. His faith is out. His faith is being applied. His faith is available. It is readily there. And what is probably my favorite movie of all time, 
right? I got a couple that I absolutely love. I, lo- I could watch It's a Wonderful Life over and over again. A lot of these are Christmas movies. I don't know what that's saying about me right now. It, it was 57 when I woke up this morning. It's just bringing all kinds of things up. But one of my favorite movies of all time, Chariots of Fire. There's a fictional race, a race that never actually happened in history, where our dueling protagonists here race against each other. Uh, Eric Little, who is the great, the flying Scotsman, the Olympic champion, who would go on to serve our our Lord as a missionary in China and ultimately uh, offer up his life as a martyr for the kingdom of God there amongst the Chinese people, is racing against Harold Abrams, and he beats Harold Abrams. Abrams himself, who would later prove worthy of Olympic champions. Abrams loses the race, and there's this short but vivid scene in the stands immediately after the competition. And everyone else is filed out. There's nobody else there. It's just Harold Abrams and his fiancée. And he's seething. He's enraged that he's lost. He's lost in fury and frustration. And he says, oh, you know, I, I had to look back. I had to see where he was. I blew my opportunity, and then he beat me. And, and, and if I can't win, I won't run. And she says, not suffering any of his foolishness. If you don't run, you can't win. Run the race. Now, there are an awful lot of things that are going to happen in the lives of every believer I've ever known. You will face trials. You will face tragedies. You will face the kinds of things that will push your faith to its absolute limit. And an awful lot of believers, in anticipation of those trials, have said, if I can't win, I won't run. I'll just sit back here. I'll never attempt anything for the kingdom of God. I'll never risk anything. I'll never venture anything. I'll just be polite and quiet back here in the corner and never disturb anything. And if trials should come, I'll be caught entirely off guard because I have dry docked the entire fleet of my faith. And one of the great things we learn about Joseph is that in the midst of his trials, maybe especially in the midst of his trials, he's ready. He's ready and he's right on edge. Put me in the race. Let me run the race. His faith is active. It's been activated. He's been running the entire time. From the day he set foot in Egypt and started as a slave laborer in the house of Potiphar, he's been ready to prove his obedience. He's been ready to prove that he believes that God is behind all of this. And he's been ready to live by faith. His faith is alert. It's active. He's ready. Secondly, Joseph's faith is confident. Joseph's faith is confident. You have to love the opportunity that arises here, starting in verse 5 and following. Two guys have a dream. And Joseph says, without flinching, hey, I know all about interpreting dreams. That comes from a real place of confidence. If you stop and think about it for a moment, because the last time that somebody had a dream that was interpreted by Joseph, who was it? It was Joseph. Joseph had a series of dreams where he would be elevated and the entire rest of his family would be forced to bow down in subservience to him, that he would be in the position of authority, 
that he would be in the position of power and influence, that he would be in the position to provide for all of them, and they would be dependent on him. Now, this is the exact same family that beat him up and sold him into slavery, lied to their father, brought the bloody cloak back. You remember all of that, right? And now Joseph has not only been sold as a slave into Egypt, it's even worse, now he's a slave in the prisons of Egypt, and he still has the audacity to go, hey, all these dreams are by God, let me interpret them for you. That means that somewhere inside Joseph, he still believes that the visions that God gave him as a 17-year-old kid back in the land of his forefathers is true. That God hasn't lied to him. That God hasn't broken this promise. He goes, I know how to interpret dreams. I've done that before. He hasn't abandoned that in an inconsistency of his faith. That Joseph did not lose faith is proven by his willingness to interpret the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. After all that had happened, he was still convinced of his ability to understand dreams and therefore the meaning of his own dreams. We went to the aquarium at Pine Knoll Shores a couple of years ago. And it was, uh, we were at the beach with my wife's family and there was a bunch of us. My in-laws are there and brothers-in-law and they've got kids. And uh, if you take a stroll behind uh, the aquarium there at Pine Knoll Shores, there's a, uh, like, there's a house that has nothing but snakes in it, right? A display, not like some creepy old house, just like a display unit there. And you go behind that and there's this big jungle gym swing set and all of that. And if you, go behind, if you haven't been bitten by enough mosquitoes yet, you can wander on this trail behind, and there's a swamp, and they've created this bridge for you to get across the swamp, right? And uh, I'm having none of it, because the bridge isn't like a wooden bridge constructed for regular people who, you know, occasionally like McDonald's. It's constructed for bird-like people. Um, and so it's big blocks of foam, right? And uh, there are boards set on the blocks of foam, and they just float there. And so my nephew, uh, he runs across the bridge first, and it's moving. But I mean, it's like dipping, like his toes are nearly in the water as these pieces, which are not even connected to, are just floating in the water. He weighs seven pounds, right? He's 11 years old. And then uh, my sister-in-law goes over, and Laura flies over, right, on angel's wings. And then my brother-in-law goes. My brother-in-law, you know, runs 10 miles a day and eats kale like candy, and, and his feet get wet because he is tipping the block. And he goes, hey, Chris, come on over. And I was like, well, you're just all kinds of stupid because there's absolutely no way that I'm going to get knee-deep on the foam block there in the swamp and get eaten by whatever critters at the bottom of this thing, right? I am pretty sure the alligators themselves have construed this bridge to eat fat guys. I'm not getting on it. I have no confidence in the object onto which I am here to step, right? None. The object of my faith was weak. And I am big boy. It was not going to happen. I think this is a problem that an awful lot of believers face. They face trials. My marriage isn't going well. I don't know if my spouse and I are going to make it. My kids have abandoned the faith, and I have no idea if they are going to be alongside me in heaven one day. I've just gotten a call from the doctor. My life has only weeks or months left and I don't know if I can endure in a kind of faithfulness that will see me through to the very end 
and we treat God like a block of foam laying in the swamp with a very low degree of confidence. This is why it's important that we read stories like that one of Joseph. Because when Joseph is in the pit of the pit, his faith is earnest and robust and extraordinarily confident. Uh, I just read a speech, um, the full transcript, um, it's the early 1940s, it's Winston Churchill speaking to Parliament, and it's the middle of the war, and the English are in a terrible place. They've just lost 30,000 soldiers in a battle that they thought was imminently winnable, and he stands before the great populace, and he talks about in what good shape they're in. The French Republic has fallen. The New World has not yet joined the war. And yet, he says, we'll fight him on the beaches, and we'll fight him in the streets, and we'll fight him. And I am supremely confident that we will defend our island home. And, and it seems, if you understand the context in which he delivers the speech, extraordinarily foolish. Where in the world did you get confidence like that? Don't you, aren't you able to observe all of the maladies and the calamities going on around you? But he does something that feels like a gift to the English people. He rejects what is in that moment an absolutely warranted cynicism. Now, he, he's not a pie-in-the-sky, half-glass-full kind of guy. He just refuses to be dour. He refuses. I wonder if one of the great tragedies of modern evangelicalism is that we have been steeped in cynicism and have forgotten in the midst of all kinds of tragic things that our God is limitless in power and his sovereignty stretches from one end of the universe to the other and he is providentially involved in every single thing he's ever made. He's involved in your life. He's involved in your kids' lives. He's involved in your spouse's lives. He's involved in your friends' and neighbors' lives. He has made it all. He rules it all. He arranges it all. It's important that as believers we have a faith like Joseph's faith that rejects all varied forms of cynicism and embraces an extraordinary confidence in the power of God. Thirdly, Joseph's faith is not only alert and it's not only confident, it's long-suffering. It's long-suffering. In 20 through 23, he does something that nobody else in the kingdom of Egypt could possibly have done. There have been dreams given by God. He alone can interpret them by the power of God. I mean, he's just performed a life-saving miracle it would feel for the cupbearer of Egypt, and then he's forgotten. And he just keeps going. He's sold by his brothers into the pit. He keeps going. He's done wrong by Potiphar's wife. He keeps going. He's thrown into the prison in abject circumstances. He keeps going. He's forgotten about by the only people who could possibly, seemingly from a human perspective, extract him from those terrible calamities. He just keeps going. 
He doesn't expect that his faith will result in the kinds of things he prays for today. The fruit of obedience is not always immediately evident. But God is still sovereign while we're waiting. I used to... The Kendrick brothers have made a number of movies. Uh, They belong to a big church in Georgia, and I'm sure you've seen these like... Um, what was the great football movie that the Kendrick brothers made? What, Facing the Giants, remember that? And Courageous, they made Courageous, and, and everything kind of works out in the end. Do you remember these movies? And I saw one of them a couple of years ago, and Priscilla Shire was the main uh, heroine in that movie. Um, she plays a woman, I think her name is Elizabeth, and it's called uh, The War Room. War Room, where an old woman teaches a young woman how to, how to pray and just set up a prayer clause in her house. She calls it The War Room. Priscilla Shire's husband has gone off. He's gotten himself in trouble at work. He's gotten himself in trouble with his kids. And he's been taken right to the verge of cheating on his wife and abandoning his family and doing all sorts of crazy and salacious things. And she just keeps praying. And she just keeps praying. And days go by and weeks go by and months go by. And she just keeps praying. And then an extraordinary thing happens. God just grabs him right by the heart and yanks it straight out of his chest and draws him back to him. And I used to think, these movies just end too well, right? All the sicknesses go away. All the prayers are answered. Everything just has a nice little bow tied around it. That's not how the real world works. Well, it's not. The Lord allows some prayers to be answered with no, right? But I had to change a heart about those movies because I'll commend to anybody who will say, I believe in the power of God to help me even in the midst of really tragic things. And every one of those movies proves that it is possible that God in his sovereign power can heal broken homes and broken bones and broken hearts and all the rest. It may not be today. It may not be until days or weeks or months or years of falling on your knees, the word before your face, and praying with the kind of fervor that is attached to no other part of your life. Or it may be only when we see him face to face but you will not endure if your faith isn't long-suffering. I remember seeing a commercial a couple of years ago for uh, health and fitness, and I can't remember what the product was. But the guy eats a bite of lettuce, and he goes, I did it! And he looks down, and there's his gut. And he gets down on the floor, and he does a single crunch. Oh, I did it! And he looks down, and there's his gut. And he goes running, and he gets all the way to the mailbox, and he stops, and he turns around, and it's still there. We need a tenacious kind of persevering faith, a long-suffering faith, and Joseph models that for us. Finally, what do we learn about God? We learn that God provides the elect with all they need to live in faith. He's displayed that in the giving of dreams and in their correct interpretation, but we learn this too. Your friends may forget you. Your family may forget you. Your children may forget you. 
Your loves may forget you, but God will never forget you. Alan Ross says again, the rising expectation of Joseph thus had reason to falter. He was forgotten. The knowledge that he was correct might have seemed a little consolation when he was in prison, but it was consolation. Others may have forgotten him, but God would not. He had a future. You will, in the heart and mind of God, those of you who have entrusted your faith to him, who have said, Jesus, I know that my sin and my rebellion have separated me from our Holy Father, but by your sacrifice, I understand that my sins have been washed away. I have been made as white as snow, and all of your righteousness has been imputed to me. In the great transaction of Calvary, I understand that that having been applied to my heart and my life and my soul, I will, by the heart and mind of God, never be forgotten. This is one of the great truths that emerges from the life of Joseph. And if you walk away with nothing else, know this. When we observe his life, like that of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, Jacob and Rachel, and on and on and on and on and on. They went through many trials. They won and lost many battles. They were hardened and weary and broken and uplifted and downcast and they vacillated between great furies and great triumphs, but they were never, ever forgotten. We have a remembering God. He remembers Joseph. We'll see it again next week in Genesis 41. Father, help us to remember how you in your providence, providing all that we need to live lives of great faith, that we are never forgotten, not because we are so extraordinarily memorable, but because you are so extraordinarily gracious, and that all of your knowledge and power, your omniscience and omnipotence, are geared in such a way to remember us, your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.